This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. You can't put together rubles with a political ad and go like, hmm, those two data points spell out something bad. Senator, it's it's a signal we should have been uh, alert to and and the Mueller investigation has been sucking up so much national media attention that there were two pretty significant stories involving Russia, U.S. tech, and politics that probably did not get enough attention. The first was a series of hearings last week in Congress over the role of an alleged Russian troll farm in buying political ads on Facebook and Twitter in the run-up to the 2016 election. The second was part of the Paradise Papers investigation, which showed that money from institutions with close ties to the Russian state funded major investments in Facebook and Twitter by a prominent Silicon Valley investor named Yuri Milner. On a lot of these stories, it is so hard to sort out the areas of legitimate concern from the areas of anti-Russian hysteria. I thought it might be helpful to invite in someone who is Russian. I am very pleased to welcome into KPFA's studios, Lisa Osetkinskaya. She's a former editor of the RBC News site in Russia, where she led the Russian side of the Panama Papers investigation. Shortly after that was published, her entire team got fired, including her. She's now a fellow at UC Berkeley's investigative reporting project and the founder of a new Russian language publication, The Bell. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Can we start off just to establish who you are Mm -hmm. for our listeners. You've worked most of your career in the Russian business press. Yeah, exactly. I started my career, uh, let's simplify, in Russian subsidiary of Wall Street Journal. So I started my career there as energy and oil uh, and gas reporter. Then I moved to Forbes, Russia. And then I was uh, invited to restructure huge operations of RBC Media that is that was the largest privately owned digital media company focused on business reporting and had the big, the largest news website in the country. And it was a fascinating job. But then we started doing investigations, uh, researched a little bit uh, about Putin's family and uh, uh, this family wealth. And then uh, when we published Panama Papers, uh, we got in trouble. Yeah, me and the senior management uh, of editorial team had to leave. But I successfully uh, landed in Stanford. Which is where I met you. Yeah. (laughs) Up until that point where where you and your team got fired after the Panama Papers investigation, did you feel like you had freedom to practice journalism in Russia? Or were there lines you knew you weren't supposed to cross? It's an interesting term that evolved soon after I left called double line, the same as you have uh, on the road. That was invented by my successor, and she had private meeting with the rest of editorial team, and she tried to explain the new borders for reporting. And journalists asked her about Putin's family. How should they report about Putin's family? And she said, look, do you understand what happens with your driving license when you cross double line? Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, well, they probably take our license away from us. She said, okay, <laughs> that's exactly the point. But they asked, but where is this double line? And she says, it's keep moving. No one knows where it is exactly. So you found out the hard way that the double yellow line was around Putin's family as a result of your reporting. At this time it was, but it keeps moving. For example, I didn't expect that Panama Papers uh, would be such a tough issue. 
probably because Russian government and Putin personally thought this is an uh, attack supported by U.S. government against him personally. In his view, this information was distributed with the help of international governments. That could be partially, at least in some proportion, true that there are some organizations that get funding from structures close to the state. They think that if you get some funding from state-like or organization that is close to the state, you play exactly what they ask you. They consider this as aggressive interference. And if you ask me and if we discuss why, for example, uh, Russian government started thinking and doing meddling in uh, U.S. elections, it was rooted in uh, 2011 when they felt threatened 2011 significant street protests. Significant street protests in Moscow after Russian parliament elections. Mm -hmm. The uh, Russian government thought that protests were a result of campaign coming from U.S. with interference because civil society organizations in, in Russia were supported by some organizations like National Endowment uh, for Democracy or Soros Foundation. A National Endowment for Democracy is funded by the U.S. government. It is, or probably even USAID, mm -hmm. too. Uh, th there were some facts, and unfortunately, Russian civil society is not that strong without this support. For mm -hmm. example, when all this support was withdrawn and taken away from, from these organizations, they just fall apart. So uh, Russian civil society, frankly speaking, is, is very weak without this, this support. So for, for the government and for Russians, that was a strategic threat coming from United States and probably personally Hillary Clinton. Because she was Secretary, because she was of, Secretary State. of State at this moment. I think they, at this time, there was a certain strategy built how to you know, protect and defend themselves by you know, <laughs> attacking someone else. By destabilizing the United Destab States. Yeah, yeah. I think so. A, a lot of the reporting on alleged Russian interference in the U.S. election has been anonymously sourced. So yeah. it is hard as a reader to independently verify. Yeah. But you put credibility in the allegations that it was Russian groups with ties to Vladimir Putin who hacked John Podesta's emails and arranged their release through WikiLeaks. Look, it's tough to judge because we don't have any data. We have only, uh, as you said, anonymous sources that say something and we cannot uh, you know, see records and so on and so forth. But what I was told by one of U.S. former officials, he told me, look, this is a normal situation when both sides always attack each other. Mm -hmm. The latest focus of... Russian interference is revelations that Facebook and Twitter, and the companies came forward and disclosed this, mm -hmm. that they both sold ads in the run-up to the election to what's now being described as a Russian troll farm. It's an organization called the Internet Research Agency. I'm going to ask you about them in a minute. First, I want to play a clip of Senator Al Franken, Democratic from Minnesota, in last week's Judiciary Committee hearing grilling Facebook's general counsel, Colin Stretch. How did Facebook, which prides itself on being able to process billions of data points and instantly transform them 
into personal connections for its user, somehow not make the connection that electoral ads paid for in rubles were coming from Russia. Those are two data points. American political ads and Russian money, rubles. How could you not connect those two dots? Senator, you mentioned uh, one aspect of uh, the, the, the Russian threat that was so visible in 2016, which was the, the question of account compromise stealing contents and um, disseminating them. And, and that's a threat our security team was intensely focused on and we think effectively addressed. I think in hindsight, we should have had a broader lens. So first off, what is the Internet Research Agency? This is an organization that produces uh, fake news. They have multiple, multiple branches that produce stories, and they pick stories of each other and gaining traffic by doing this. So that, this is a way how they accumulate enormous amount of traffic. And uh, basically, they became one of the largest news producers, but they don't produce any real news. They just aggregate and produce news that sometimes do not exist at all. And they achieve prominence by setting up lots of sites that link to each other? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are the origins of the Internet Research Agency? It's interesting story. So it's called in the media. I have to be cautious here. It was organized by the man who is known as Putin's chief. So this guy specializes in food industry. He had a restaurant in St. Petersburg. It's happened. He invited Vladimir Putin and his friends celebrated something in this restaurant. And that's how they became connected. That was probably in 90s or early 2000s. Then he moved towards Moscow and towards Kremlin. And uh, little by little, he built his business providing food to state organizations and to the schools and um, a defense ministry. So built it on government contracts. Yeah, building, yeah, built on government contracts, exactly. Well, how does a food baron wind up in the fake news business? So my story was as follows. When I worked at Forbes, we published a story about his state contracts with the army and schools. And soon after that, a text advertisement was placed in Forbes magazine. There were just two pages with um, interview-like advertisement, like advertorial. Soon after, uh, a man who was a hero of this advertisement sued Forbes for publishing fake story <laughs> about him. Because according to Russian law, publication is responsible for the content of advertisement. So he took us to the court. And as we knew, the agency that placed advertisement was close to Putin's chief. His name is Evgeny Prigozhin. Wait, wait. So are you saying Prigozhin bought an ad for the purposes of bringing a malicious lawsuit over the publication of the yeah, ad? Yeah, exactly. So he couldn't sue us for publication about him, about his business. That's why he decided to harm our reputation that we publish fake news <laughs> and also taking money for that. 
So his goal was to harm our reputation for, uh, through saying that we are taking money for publications, that we are bribed, corrupt magazine. That is someone who really knows how to run a prank. Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a troll. So only troll, <laughs> you know, could imagine this sophisticated story. So what does this Bergosian character get out of running troll operations and a troll factory? Is it something that he makes money from? I think he makes recognition and he helps homeland country. Because in their perspective, Russia is under attack. They fight for their country. Okay, but then if Prigozhin is running the troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, out of a sense of patriotism, right? Yeah. That's not the same as saying Putin or the Russian government are trying to interfere in the American elections. First, this is a private initiative, and okay. I'm highly convinced, highly convinced that there is no any proof that he got any official orders. This is a little more complicated that it is perceived in American media and is presented in American media. A lot of people trying to get Putin's respect and they're organizing some sort of activity like that. So it's almost like the inverse of the double yellow line. You do favors you do for the exactly. Putin administration, knowing that some of them will get paid back, just not quite how. Yeah, in cer in certain way. They shouldn't even be get exact direction. Just people do what they think would be helpful. There's an in-depth report in the New York Times on the Internet Research Agency a couple of years ago. And the origin story they told about it was that after 2011, the popular protests that you referenced, the Kremlin realized that the internet was a force for dissent and that people were organizing against the Putin government on the internet. And the internet research agency came out of their interest in developing countermeasures, in neutralizing the threat through trolling. Does that jibe with your understanding of how it's operated this within even, Russia? This is even more interesting. I read in the newspapers, in Russian newspapers, that there were uh, a certain intention from secret services, one of the secret intelligence service structures, to uh, uh, work out a system that would monitor, evaluate, and also act in internet and social media in the cases like color uh, revolutions or some other protest activity. That was more official than Prigozhin's activity. But uh, probably trying to predict your next question, I don't believe that this initiative was as efficient as media industry uh, now presents it. You mean you it, don't think it was effective in the United States? I think it was not that effective. Look, fact number one, it happened. But if we try to assess the scale of this activity, first, it's very hard to measure. But Facebook has said that 137 million people at least saw the ads that were purchased by Internet Research Agency. And that doesn't count the organic reach, right? The things that showed up from stuff that its Facebook pages put on Facebook but didn't pay to promote. 
Yeah, this sounds like enormous amount of content. But compared to uh, money spent on uh, official election campaign of both candidates, that was just peanut. And uh, compared to the whole advertisement placed in the Facebook, that was just a minor fraction. So, to recap. Yeah. Was Russia trying to interfere in the election? Definitely, yes. Was Russia successful in changing the outcome of the election? Uh, maybe was one of the factors. Was maybe. Very narrow election, actually. Any factor could be determinative. Yeah, that's that. That's an argument, uh, argument that we often hear about these elections, that the difference was so marginal. I want to spend some time talking about uh, the latest revelations from the Paradise Papers yeah, before sure. we close out, but we are short on time. Mm -hmm. And this is that money from sources closely associated with the Russian state, Gazprom, the petrochemical monopoly, and VTB, which mm -hmm. is a state-licensed bank, invested money that moved through a prominent Silicon Valley investor mm -hmm. who happens to be Russian named Yuri Milner to create fairly large stakes in Facebook and Twitter. The implication in the American press is that this was an attempt to curry some influence with Facebook and Twitter. What do you think? So let me start with the very beginning. What was news in this Paradise Paper about that? There was a very well-known fact that Yuri Milner took money from Russian oligarch whose name is Alisher Osmanov. And this was known before That this was known news. before uh, Paradise Papers. Uh -huh. And there was already widely discussed fact that he came from criminal environment. At least he dealt with people with criminal background. And that was a, a fact that was widely discussed everywhere. The news about Paradise Paper that came from Paradise Paper, that basically it were not his money were not his private money, but he took money from Gazprom Invest Holding, uh, where he was a CEO or general director. That was a new fact. And that, that also that they used money from Vetebe, state bank. So Vetebe is state-owned bank that gave money to Raldugin, who is a close friend of Putin. And it was not said like that, but it sounded like that means that exactly Putin gave money to Yuri Miller. What is exactly not true? Mm -hmm. So because many entrepreneurs, oligarchs and business people and investors could borrow money from Vetebe. Of course, Vetebe, this is very close. This is very close to Putin. Well, more it, importantly, whether Putin's directly involved in getting the money into Facebook and Twitter or only very tenuously involved in it. Does the idea that it's an attempt to influence those companies hold any water, or is this just like any other investor seeking a return? I'm 120%, as I say, convinced that there were no any uh, relationships between these investments and Kremlin uh, attempt to interfere anything. I think that Yuri Milner, as a, a ex extremely smart investor and uh, person, saw a great opportunity to invest in Facebook at the time where no one gave 
money to Facebook because it was very soon after real estate crisis in the United States and larger world financial crisis. And that was an opportunity. And also Russian oligarchs suffered from this situation. And Russian government was the only fat cat in Russia at this time. And that was very logic, logically that if you have this opportunity to get money from Russian government, invest in Facebook, to get, I don't know, 100, uh, 200% return on your investments and then give this money back, that was just a genius investment. What is interesting is that Alisher Usmanov has always had very close relationships with Gazprom since early or mid of 90s, despite of change of Gazprom management. And he could use Gazprom money, uh, very straightforward thing, uh, for this investment. This is a question to him and his relationships with Gazprom. Was it fair to take their money? So Gazprom should ask Alisher Osmanov, why you took our money? Did you give us this uh, 100 to 200% back on our investments? Probably not. I don't know. Right. So maybe this is a, a bigger scandal for Russia's public sector than it is for Facebook or Twitter. It must be a much bigger uh, scandal for Russian public sector, but no one is interested. All right. Lizaveta, that is a good note to end on. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. <laughs> Liza Osetinskaya is former editor of the RBC News site in Russia, where she published the Russian side of the Panama Papers investigation shortly after her entire team got fired. She's now a fellow at UC Berkeley's investigative reporting project and the founder of a new Russian language publication, The Bell. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker, with help from Lucy Kang. We've been aiming to get an episode up every Friday. We have also been failing miserably. But what we do do is make sure episodes go up here before they go to the airwaves. So if you subscribe, you are always getting the latest. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org, or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.